So I guess we're, um, we're right on time. This is um, endarkenment. Uh, can everyone hear me? Is back, back against the wall too. This is endarkenment, nihilism in, uh, as liberation in weird fiction. And in just a moment, I'm gonna let everybody go down the, um, the table and introduce themselves and give you their, um, their sort of very brief CV. But, um, but I do wanna have a, a, a mention a couple of, of housekeeping notes before we begin. One is we've been asked by a podcaster if, um, if he can record the session. And everyone on the panel has consented to that. I just want to let you know that this is being recorded. So if, um, if you ask a question or something like that, please try to project if you want to be picked up by the microphone. If you don't want to be picked up by the microphone, then um, I guess perhaps don't ask your question. I, 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 hate to, I hate to put it like that, but yeah, that's kind of the only way because we can't go seat by seat and ask everybody's permission. Um, so I, I would say that by remaining in the room, you're, you're giving your permission to be recorded. Uh, second bit of housekeeping, and I almost never uh, never do this, but I want to do it for this panel in particular because we're, it's, a, it's a dark subject, and, and I suspect it's going to go in, in a few dark places, so I want to give kind of a content warning before we begin. Um, we're going to be talking about nihilism, we're going to be talking about, uh, about the idea of nihilism as a, as a source of, of liberation, absolutely, but also in its traditional formulation as a sense of, of despair, disconnection. The topic of suicide may come up. I, I intend to talk about Albert Camus and his famous philosophical questions. So if any of these things uh, would be upsetting or, or, or harmful to you in any, any way, I just wanted to let you know now so you have the opportunity to, um, to take whatever measures you need to protect yourself. All right, so uh, having said that, let's get started. This is Endarkenment, Nihilism as Liberation in Weird Fiction. Our course uh, description reads as follows. Thomas Ligotti once wrote that consciousness has forced us into the paradoxical position of striving to be unselfconscious of what we are, hunks of spoiling flesh on disintegrating bones. And in doing so, joined a host of writers and philosophers dabbling in what's generally scoffed at as nihilism. But what if the lack of meaning could lead not to oppression, but to liberation? We're here to discuss ways in which literary and philosophical endarkenment can lead to new vistas of understanding and meaning in meaninglessness. Uh, I'm your moderator, Bracken McLeod. I'll tell you who I am in a s further in a second, but I'd like to go down uh, the panel and let everyone introduce themselves and, and tell you a little bit about who they are. I'm Nicole Cushing. Uh, I'm the author of Mr. Suicide, won the Bram Stoker Award for her first novel of 2015, two-time nominee for the Stoker uh, for the um, Shirley Jackson Award, and I have a new novel called A Sick Gray Laugh, which is not in the vendor hall, but you can get it at the Lovecraft Arts and Sciences uh, store over at the Arcade. Hi, I'm Daphne Jam Host. I live here in Providence, and I think about stuff too much and write it down sometimes. <laughs> Hello. Thanks for coming out. Uh, my name is John Paget. Uh, I am the co-editor-in-chief of Vastarian, a literary journal, um, which uh, recently won the This Is Horror Award for Best uh, Fiction magazine. Um, and I am also a horror author sometimes, and the longtime administrator, 21 years now, um, of Thomas Ligotti Online. Uh, my name is Scott Dwyer. 
I run Plutonian Press, a up-and-coming small press. I also run the Plutonian website, which does articles and interviews featuring you know, the best in weird horror fiction and interviewing filmmakers and authors from upstate New York. Um, and I have a new book coming out. I'm doing a, a launch party here called Pluto and Furs. It's a collection of erotic horror fiction, which will be today at 6 o'clock. If anyone wants to stop by and pick up a copy, there's limited copies. And thank you all for coming. Uh, just for you in the back, there are a couple of empty seats up here, if you don't mind. Uh, uh, getting close to people. If you're comfortable where you are, you're welcome to stay. So, um, so let's talk about it. I mean, I, I think we should start with some, um, some sort of definitional aspects of, of nihilism to begin. Uh, you know, because it's a, it's a big joke in, you know, in, in culture a lot of the time, the nihilists and in uh, the big Lebowski, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Nihilism is a condition, Nietzsche wrote that nihilism is a condition of tension. A, disproportion between what we want to value or need and how the world appears to operate, which is a fancy way of saying that uh, that the world appears to have no meaning, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a stripped of the things that we put on top of it. We can't find an intrinsic value in life or the world by itself. We have to apply that. And the idea of nihilism is what what is our necessary mental state or emotional state or ethical state after we've come to that conclusion? Um, when I was doing research for this panel, it's, um, it's an interesting thing because people are legit terrified of this. Uh, you know, I, I, I started looking things up to, respond, to re remind myself of, of my, my old days back in, in grad school. And, and I used to teach, I, I didn't get my own bio. I, I, I used to teach philosophy at, at Colorado State University before I became a lawyer, and now I'm a, a full-time writer. Um, and, and when I was refreshing my recollection on, on these ideas, the, the first few pages of hits are all people who are railing against it, like, real hard. It's a very threatening idea um, to imagine that the world has no meaning. So I want to start with um, asking all of you, and I guess we're going to do this in a, in a broad sense without breaking it down into the smaller categories of nihilism. Um, what is nihilism to you? And can you in any sense um, call yourself a nihilist, or do you reject that label? Um, nihilism. I, I think you covered it in the sense of, you know, looking at all the usual places that people tell us there is meaning and discovering that it's either transitory uh, or not rewarding um, and having an awareness, you know, of, I mean, the most clear-cut example is I had a friend uh, who died of breast cancer and I saw her go from this person to um, a box of ashes. And uh, so, yeah, this uh, very crude deconstruction of the same matter, and you know, and everything transformed, uh, and that made it very aware of you know, one day, and in, in you know, I'm 46, so it'll be happening probably sometime in the next 40 years, hopefully not soon. Um, but um, yeah, uh, that I'm going to die, and that's not going to be a very good day. There's going to be pain. There's not going to be any real inherent meaning in it. They won't be, uh, if my books last, uh, at some point they're not going to last. Um, 
because all you know, fame is fleeting or, or recognition is fleeting uh, as well. And uh, and the second question was, well, do you do you in any sense consider yourself a nihilist? <laughs> yeah, I, what I've come to realize is that I am. Uh, uh, my mind and heart are far too chaotic to commit to any particular philosophy, uh, and so which is a nihilism all itself because we can make nihilism a meaning and say I am a card-carrying nihilist and I belong to the tribe of nihilists. I think it's a far more rewarding nihilism to, uh, to to basically bounce freely from various different opinions about it, and so um, it all depends on whether I've taken my Zoloft that day uh, or um, you know. Whether uh, whether I have happened to have a good day with my husband and my cat, or uh, whether I'm looking at my father who had a stroke six years ago and doesn't recognize me and says dreadful things uh, to me when I come to visit, and who is kind of has that far off look and this again this transformation of someone and knowing that you know every corpse was first an infant, right uh, and. So knowing that of what what's awaiting us, so I um, I kind of have a funhouse look at it, um, especially lately, and, and and it's reflected in my work too. Kind of being influenced less by the I, I have great respect for Thomas Ligotti, great 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 respect um, and admiration, uh, and I probably wouldn't have a career without him. But I'm also looking beyond what he did and looking at authors like Vitol Gombrovich who kind of had this idea of uh, uh, the nihilism of the self and seeing that the self is uh, constructed from other selves and this funhouse mirror kind of nihilism. So uh, yeah, it, it all depends. I, I, I don't consider myself any particular thing, any particular category. I am an agent of chaos. That's a joke. <laughs> Some authors just want to watch the world burn. <laughs> oh, I kind of like Nicole. I wouldn't really consider myself anything. Um, I've always understood nihilism in the sense of uh, more not so much just facing a problem of meaninglessness, mm -hmm. but like the negation of meaning. Right. And a very specific. I mean, even, Very specific meaning. Even meaning that's overlaid on something like if we try to apply meaning, do you think that it that it that it acts to nullify applied meaning? Applied. Well, so let's let's I, say in the way that that Camus uh, declared that that life itself is enough. Can you we know, not apply meaning? Right. Can 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 we do well, anything if? That's <laughs> <laughs> like, like the human project. Like humans apply meaning, they apply words, they apply definitions. Like you can't escape that trap. And we don't just overlay meaning. it, though. Yeah. Like we embody. Like you can't it. stop doing it, even if you wanted to, just from the basic fact of you being a human being. You know. Yeah, we're hardwired for meaning. The only time that we're not uh, is when we're severely depressed, and any of us who have who have dealt with depression, which in, in this field is a high percentage, knows that, uh, that there, there are days when the depression is, is crushing, that uh, nothing matters. It, it's not even a question of meaning. Um, it's, it, it's a smothering numbness um, that can be, uh, be all-consuming. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about 
you know, since our mandate is to talk about nihilism as liberation and weird fiction, I still want to break it down into one more thing. You know, when we talk about nihilism so far, we've been talking about um, existential nihilism, meaninglessness of, of existence and everything, but we also um, have a sense of, of ethical nihilism, right? That, um, that we reject the possibility of absolute moral, certain moral values. I mean, are these two things interlinked? Do we necessarily, if we embrace existential nihilism or we, we sort of acknowledge it, the, the truth of it before we, before we try to apply our own meaning, does that necessarily extend to ethical nihilism as well? Not to me. Um, uh, you know, I, I'd like to read an excerpt um, from an essay written by a, a child therapist who underwent his own unspeakable horrors. Um, uh, this was actually an essay in the very first issue of, of Vastarian. Uh, the therapist uh, went by the pen name Dr. Raymond Thoss, uh, which those Ligotti readers out there know exactly what that refers to. Um, and he writes, implicit in offering these choices is that the darkness is a completely valid perspective. My children have looked into the abyss, and the abyss also looked into them, but they did not choose to look into it. They were witness to a nightmare they never should have been witness to. And when they tell of what they've seen, they are dismissed, because others who have not seen the darkness cannot believe that this is a fundament of the world. Mm -hmm. They cannot believe that the world is fundamentally insane. Thomas Ligotti validated this for me, and in doing so, quite literally saved my life. I, to deny this perspective is the conspiracy he speaks of. It is a lethal conspiracy. All four children I see at the end of my Monday wanted to kill themselves prior to coming to me. I would have killed myself. I wanted to so badly until he validated that yes, the darkness is real, I will show you the shattered and tattered and broken world, a world of fragmented, ubiquitous iniquity. You are not insane, the world is. You are simply awake. Um, so yeah, that, and, and I'm seeing some nodding heads out there. Uh, those of us who have been through a lot, which are many of us, and eventually all of us um, know that there, there, is, there is great uh, strength and empowerment uh, and potentially salvation in, um, in just that acknowledgement that the worst can happen. The worst is happening. The worst will happen. So, um, so sort of riffing off of that, when, when you're speaking specifically of Ligotti's work, uh, do you find that there is hopefulness in the work itself, or is it the, the relationship we have to it that, that, uh, that provides um, you know, this, this liberation that we're seeking on the panel? You know, I think, I think in, in Tom's work, I don't think he set out in any way to uh, to to make that that connection. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, I think that's a side effect of, uh, of him not only being an extraordinary uh, thinker and writer, but also being an incredibly kind and, and humane person, <laughs> which, you know, the, as, as terrible as the things that happen in Ligotti's work, both fiction and nonfiction, are, uh, that... Um, there, there, there is a, a shared humanity that really comes through to the readers that love his work the most, um, and uh, and paradoxically um, gives them consolation. I, I mean, I know that's that that's what first drew me to to his work um, back in '91. Uh, I, I felt like finally somebody is is saying things. In, in, a, in a way that I thought was only ever in my head, yeah. um, and, and like and like Dr. Foss's uh, uh, children, that acknowledgement paradoxically made it easier for me to continue. Nicole, you said you wouldn't. I mean, you owed a, a lot of of your career to Ligotti. Do you want to? Could you discuss that? And, and well, sure. About your relationship with him? Oh, um, as gosh. A, well, as a writer, of course. Right, of course. <laughs> um, well, I mean, gosh. I think similar to what John said, there's there's an honesty that Ligotti brings to the table, and there's a beauty that he brings to the table. Uh, and I think the only liberation that we can expect weird fiction to deliver to our readers or to the writer's community are those two things, honesty and beauty. Um, and honesty you can get in essays. You know, honesty is something that can be delivered by nonfiction. Uh, but beauty is something that fiction alone really brings to the table, uh, and other forms of art, of course. And so um, that is what drew me to him. Uh, and you know, I've, I've had the, the opportunity to correspond with him. Um, you know, I've had the opportunity to, um, to have suggestions for my work made by him. Um, and I can tell you that uh, at different times of my career where I've been at a crossroads, his advice has been very important to me as far as making a decision of which way to go. Um, and also just as an example, too, of the, what, how you can be a writer and uh, how you can continue to pursue your own uh, path and not necessarily try to, you know, hit the big time with the formula that is going to be a bestseller and then eventually win the day. Um, and so that's a huge inspiration for me that, you know, you don't have to uh, go through some hero's journey sort of archetype, you know, uh, um, you know, kind of template to, uh, you know, to write a novel where the, uh, you know, a happy family uh, continues at the end and um, all that sort of thing that you can, you can write this stuff and you can pursue your own uh, direction and eventually you can uh, win out. And kind of, kind of riff on that. Certain souls, there's their sole place they could find beauty and truth is in the horror genre. Like in terms of like finding a salvation through this dark poetry that horror makes, of like the horribleness of life, the 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 dark things, things you want to think about. Horror comes along and like like Ligotti, just this gorgeous prose, and and 
also, one thing with Gotti, I think a lot of first-time readers, when they connect with Gotti, it really seems like he's writing for you. Mm-hmm. And you and you form this personal connection with Gotti, and he's kind of more more popular these days, but I remember when I first started reading him, I didn't know anybody else read him. I, it was like, he was my writer. He, right. he wrote the things for me. And that, like, that helps you. As, like, a horror fan, and as, you know, human being a human being yeah you know like this is this is a, a path of finding some kind of meaning meaning in the darkness you know in the horror genre it's like a substitute for scripture if you don't believe in anything <laughs> <laughs> well i think you know i i think that's a a really interesting thing i'd like to discuss a little bit um you know Lagani's fiction to me is is uh is compelling because it's so out of the ordinary out of keeping with mainstream ordinary genre fiction, which is to say that horror fiction, to a, a huge degree, is a very conservative genre. Um, even you know, even when written by by progressive artists, it's about the re- a lot of it. So much of it is about the reestablishment of the status quo. Is is um, sort of life changing, world changing threat appears. Characters' lives become unmoored. And they fight and struggle and claw to restore that original order, you know, that that overlay, and 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 you can see that in all in all sorts of fiction. Um, but Ligotti doesn't ever let you kind of come back to where you started. I mean, it depends yeah. what side of the fence you're on. Yeah. Like saying that, I think if you talk to people who their main interest in art is the horror genre, these aren't the people reading those kind of narratives. These are the kind of people that go for the more pessimistic stuff. And I think one thing even horror fans do is judge the horror genre by its worst examples and say, you know, you look at the mainstream films, you look at like the long blockbuster novels and you go, okay, this is horror. And then Ligotti's different. No, Ligotti's horror and this other stuff is not horror and, and horror shouldn't be judged by its worst examples. You know, uh, Ligotti himself uh, has uh, mentioned this in The Conspiracy Against the Human Race. He says, uh, many books promoted as vehicles of a dark vision finish up by lounging in a warm bath of affirmation, (laughs) often often doing a traitorous turnabout in their closing pages or paragraphs. Yeah, yeah, and I I just want to say, I think it's important to comment on a couple of things, because we talk about the Lovecraftian influence uh, behind Ligotti's work a lot. Um, But I want to say that some of what makes his work different is the influence of Edgar Allan Poe, who I think everyone should rediscover because we read him in elementary school or middle school and then we kind of put him aside. And if you re-examine the work, there's a lot to to it that um, about the the kind of... uh, the, the world working backwards, reality kind of working backwards, uh, that is not necessarily appreciated by your middle school teacher, and so she cannot communicate that to you. Uh, and, uh, and then the other thing is uh, all these authors from Central Europe, uh, all, you know, I mentioned Gambrovich, and uh, you know, there's uh, Bruno Schultz, uh, among others. Uh, Nabokov, at least in a, a prose stylist kind of sense, is, is a um, is an influence, and he certainly was also aware of works like uh, Sade Hediet's *The Blind Owl*. Um, Garbinsky's *Dark Domain*. Yeah, I mean, there, and so there's this tradition out there that is even 
more, even less well-known or less well-appreciated, there are these moments in, in literature where these very nightmarish visions have been communicated, and sometimes they were repressed you know, or suppressed. Sometimes they were written uh, under a pen name. Uh, and so like the Night Watches of Bonaventura, uh, for example, but there's you know, this, these wonderful nightmarish texts that are out there. And I think that's also an important reason why his work is so much of a departure from, uh, from, from mainstream horror fiction is that it's informed by literary fiction from Central Europe, where they don't have the same kind of genre literary divide that we have. I think you know. I think that's interesting. You mentioned you know it's worse examples, and I certainly didn't. I didn't mean to uh, to intimate that that um, that sort of schlocky you know horror is. I like a little shock. I like a little shock yeah, too. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I, I really do. But I wonder if um, you know. I mentioned earlier the fear that I had seen online when I was looking this up. If if what. And I'm kind of, I mean, we're all kind of preaching to the choir in this crowd, being uh, Necronomicon. If this were a more general horror con, like um, World Horror Stoker Con, I think you'd have a, a, a group of people who probably hate Legati, love Stephen King, for exactly this reason, which is that, is that it's too much of a hard truth to, to live with. Too intimate of a truth. Right, yeah. I mean, it's usually... I mean, writing about the experiences that are things that happen to you when you're completely alone or like the things that only you saw that you don't know how to describe to someone else like right absolutely you know because these are these are our our sort of darkest thoughts you know in those moments everybody's of, got them. Uh, in those moments of solitude yeah where, you know you do where we say you know there is no meaning here like this is this is all worthless and and it's the, the ladder out of worthlessness that we have to climb, we have to construct ourselves um, when we're faced with this sort of thing. Do you think that's part of, of I mean, it seems to me that that's part of what drew all of you to Ligari, is this, is this um, sort of frightening truth, but the, the, the feeling of, of, for me, it was like a weight being lifted when that truth settled into my mind, because I, I remember in, in moments of, of depression that, that it wasn't the meaninglessness of life that saddened me. It was the idea that there was a meaning that I couldn't grasp and didn't include me. Mm. Right? I mean, uh, do any of you care to comment on, on sort of that dichotomy, that, that this, <coughs> this attitude is a liberation because it frees you from failure of meaning? I mean, I mean society doesn't want you to discuss, like, you should be a good worker, you should be happy, you should be smiling at your customers. Society does not want you to talk about your private fears or your letdowns. And that's, or how many people can't do that. Yeah, yeah, you're not allowed to. Or you'll be fired, you won't have a job, you know? <laughs> it's, it, I mean, yeah, it's a, it, it, it's a bummer when you're trying to order a Whopper and, yeah. you know, and, and someone says, you know, well, that comes with a side of nothing. <laughs> I would, I would like that Whopper. <laughs> it's a bummer when you're in Burger King, honestly. Well, yeah, yeah, honestly, yeah, it is. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, so I guess, I, you know, we can we can move on there and, and talk about, um, you know, sort of expand our, our view. Who are some other writers who I think touch on 
these subjects in a, in a similar way or maybe a completely different way, but, but still come to the same end result as Lagani that you, that you found um, pleasure in reading? Uh, I'm going to mention uh, some writers who were featured in the Vandermeer's uh, anthology, The Weird. Um, if anyone has read that, there's, and uh, unfortunately, the names of the authors are escaping me. Um, but w one of them uh, was an author who wrote a story, this, these are authors that wrote well before Lagatti, uh, called The Hell Screen. Uh, another was The Town of Cats. Um, and the Vandermeers established this you know, anthology, it's huge, thick anthology called The Weird, <laughs> that runs the whole historical gamut across different cultures. Again, Sade Heniet. Um, I think there's a, there's a writer uh, that just had a book published uh, through New Directions, which is a literary press, um, and the, the writer is deceased, unfortunately, but he's uh, from North Africa, a, a writer named uh, Ahmed Bouani. Uh, wrote a book called The Hospital, which struck me as being vaguely Lovecraft, uh, vaguely Ligotian, um or kind of Kafka-esque. Um, again, uh, The Night Watches of Bonaventura uh, is another one that struck me as similar to Ligotian some aspects. Basically, uh, and of course, Ligotti, I'm just getting the, trying to get a taste of Thomas Bernhardt, who is a uh, Austrian writer who is one of Ligotti's favorite writers, and I picked up a copy of his book. And of course, Vitol Gombrovich, uh, Leonid Andreev is another one uh, from the early 20th century Russia, wrote a great book called The Red Laugh, and another one called The Seven Who Were Hanged. So, um, yeah, good stuff. And there's someone named uh, Nicole Cushing as well, <laughs> who you really should check out. Um, and just look out in the, in the best way. But, I, you know, I think that there are a lot of authors that are, that are writing right now that are influenced um, in one way or another uh, by Ligotti. You know, Matthew and Bartlett and, and uh, Matt Carden come to mind immediately. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, it, it's hard, sort of like, so, sort of like uh, authors writing in a Lovecraftian vein. It, it's, it, it's, it, it's hard to, uh, to say that anybody is quite like uh, Thomas Ligotti. Mm -hmm. um, he, he's, he's, uh, his, his work is immediately um, distinctive. Uh, from from other uh, authors, which is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, about five years ago when the first season of True Detective came around, uh, it was immediately <laughs> clear uh, to me where where uh, the words coming out of Russ Cole's mouth uh, were coming from. Philosopher, are you telling me this? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's talk about True Detective for a minute, since you, since you brought it up. Do you feel like they, uh, I mean, it's clear to everyone, I think, who's seen it, and, and um, you know, forgive us, we're going to probably spoil a lot of the first season, but um, do you feel like they did justice to Lugani's philosophy through Rust Cole and, and the words he's speaking? Not at all. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I, I think that was one of the more infuriating things about uh, about that season was that uh, when when in in that remarkable uh, scene, I think in the first episode where Russ starts spouting out 
um, words either directly or paraphrased directly from uh, conspiracy against the human race, so many people, I, I, remember, I remember reading the reactions of so many people, not, not readers of horror, not anyone who knows Gotti, uh, responding to the dialogue by saying, you know, wow, in uh, much the same way that I felt when, when I, I first started reading Ligotti, wow, that, that somebody is saying what I've been thinking for years and I've never heard this before. This is something, this is something brand new. And, um, and, and as many uh, of us I I experienced at the end of that season, um, uh, just as, uh, you know, it, it ends in the in in um, Ligotti's words, lounging in a warm bath of affirmation. <laughs> it, it, it does a, a traitorous turnabout and and an unearned uh, turnabout uh, of the character, in my opinion, and one that I think that he uh, that Pizzolatto um, uh, planned from the very beginning. That's the reason why. Uh, when it all came out that, that uh, Ligotti's words were behind it, uh, he, he said, you know, wait, I'm, I'm not a nihilist. Don't get, me, don't get me wrong. Wait until the end of the series and you'll see what I think about this. Um, I mean, do you think that that line at the end, that the, the, the light is winning, you know, which was a, yeah. which I agree with you is a totally unearned moment of, and, of turn. And for, one written by Russell, Alan Moore. Russ Cole, and yeah, and stolen from Alan Moore. Um, nice. You know, uh, I mean, do you think that that, it, it's purely speculative, and I know that you have no idea what was going on in Pizzolatto's head, but do you think that that was a, a sort of a, a, what I was talking, you know, what I opened with, that, that fear of nihilism, and if he allowed Russ Cole to end the series with the same set of values and, and, and emotional outlook that he began the series with, that, um, that he, was, he was afraid of letting that, that person have, that, re, retain that life. Yeah, I, I, I do. I, I have no idea what was going through his head either, but my feeling is that that Pizzolatto probably, um, I would be surprised if, if he didn't have a different ending in mind uh, at some point. Uh, and I may be completely wrong about oh, that. And, and perhaps the network gave him a note, like, we need to redeem maybe, this character. Maybe, yeah. I, I think that whole situation was, was probably more HBO's fault than, than Pizzolatto's fault um, for a variety of reasons. Kind of getting to what Brandon was talking about about the revulsion that many people have to nihilism. I think generally in the media landscape, what we're seeing is something um, you know analogous to the socialist realism of the Stalin era in the Soviet Union, where you had to have entertainment that reached the masses and made them happy to be working and that kept them on mission and, you know, et cetera, and all, you know, very, very positive. And there's this wonderful author who is not necessarily nihilist, um, but her name is uh, Dubravka Ugrisic. Um, and uh, she wrote a book called, uh, that's been translated into English called Thank You for Not Reading, talking about the publishing landscape and basically comparing the socialist realism of uh, the Soviet Union to the current US media landscape 
uh, where, again, everything has to be happy, happy, joy, joy. Uh, and we need to help people feel good, you know, help the workers feel good and, uh, and you know, promote the strong family and, and this kind of thing. And uh, it's a very interesting perspective. And I think it's, it's basically accurate that, uh, you know, the, especially since 1970 or so, um, publishing has been colonized by capitalism in a way that never had been before. And the result is what we have, um, which is, you know, um, kind of uh, pro, when I say pro-life, not in like in terms of like uh, in, in the context of the abortion debate, but, you know, what Ligotti might say is, you know, the perspective that being alive is okay, you know, and, and, and let's celebrate this in romance and adventure and whatnot. Um, and honesty of this sort is, um, you know, as, as forbidden by the market as uh, so as it would be uh, as alternative perspectives would have been in during the socialist real, realist era in uh, the Soviet Union, with the exception that no one gets murdered. <laughs> yeah, and I was uh, I was actually raised in an environment where life was not only okay, like. Is the point of everything, and there is a big cosmic plan that God had that was for everybody's everything happiness. The one path, you, you know. Have, yeah. And so when you fall outside of that narrow vision, and say you're a trans kid or a queer kid, or uh, you you embody like everything that they're most afraid of because they depend so much on that narrative. I mean, was that, uh, if, if, and, and, and tell me if this is, is, you don't want to answer, was that a part of your being able to, to sort of live with yourself authentically, that jettisoning of God's plan and the meaning? Oh, I did that a long time ago. <laughs> I mean, but was it, was it the, 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 uh, sort of the instigating thing that freed you, or did that come later? You know, it's really hard to say. Like, I, re I remember being eight years old and wondering why there's something and not nothing after, you know, we got the whole story about the pre-existence and about how we came here for whatever reason and uh, we're just pretty much waiting around to die to go to, you know, someplace better. Uh, and all of the adults around you are saying this, so you have no reason not to believe that. Like, right. that's just reality. Yeah, well, as an, yeah, sure, as an eight-year-old, everything that you're being told is all you know, right? Yeah, and then gradually you can't keep the world out completely, and so once that's punctured, you know, it's... Yeah. No, it's, it's funny, I had, a similar, I had a similar moment of despair. I, th I, was, I was also eight years old and had that, and had that, um, that sort of realization that that maybe everything that I had been told by my grandparents, my, my parents weren't particularly religious, they just never ever talked about it. My grandparents were religious, and, um, and you know, were always sort of reaffirming that you know, the afterlife will be wonderful, you'll get to see all of your friends, and all of your pets, and everything that's great, and there's ice cream every day, and, you know, and, and Burger King doesn't suck, and, <laughs> you know, and all of the things that you want to be true will be true after you die, and I come, to a point in my life at eight, because of the way my life was was working out, that I I didn't believe any of it because it seemed like bullshit. It seemed like this life is so hard. Why can't I have all these things now? 
Well, also, and, and on top of that, um, you know, I had a similar experience myself, and, uh, and not only was it impossible for me to believe, but um, I don't remember when I first had the thought, but, you know, just the nightmare of immortality and, and being this, my identity as John Paget, Jonathan Paget, whoever I am, uh, forever, you know, and, and just, and, and if you've gone through enough in life and you've, you've seen enough suffering and death, then you know that the death part, once it's done, is not necessarily the most terrible thing in the world. In fact, it's it, can, never done. It, can, it can be a <laughs> salvation in and of itself. And, and that's not saying, you know, uh, I myself, I, I don't consider myself an, a nihilist. Again, on certain days I have, and on certain days I probably will again. Um, but we are high, we're hardwired, uh, again, to uh, have meaning. And that includes Ligotti, and he, he's admitted it himself. We're, you know, uh, writing a book is life-affirming um, to, to a certain degree, uh, as well as, as reading one. Um, uh, we, find, we find our own meaning in the time that we're here, but there's, as, as I'm getting older, you know, the loss of identity in my mind used to be the worst thing that I could possibly imagine. It used to be the thing that would keep me up at night and, and make me have nightmares. In fact, the very first nightmare I ever remember having was about losing my identity. Um, and I never had one. <laughs> well, then you're lucky. And that was what was terrifying. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, that's at the, doesn't that, that strikes right at the heart of, of sort of uh, afterlife belief and, and, and eternal aspiration is this idea that my identity is what will survive and the me that is thinking, the me that is experiencing will always be. Right, because no one wants to live in their bodies forever. We all—it's not like your body is what's thinking. Yeah, right. experiencing, well, I mean, it right? is. That's exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, when you get down to it, it is your body that's thinking and experiencing. It's all electrochemical processes and a hunk of meat stuffed in a in a piece of bone, and and your identity. But then even that's just a metaphor. You know. Yeah. Right. And, and your identity is wholly constructed of of these of these of chemistry and and biology and we've constructed for ourselves this this happy fiction that when my brain dies my identity can persist yeah which uh, which seems to anyone who thinks hard enough about what consciousness is I, I, you know and there's an entire wing of philosophy that's devoted to consciousness right, right study of it. whether or not consciousness you know the ceasing of consciousness is an aspiration like I'm unconscious at least twice a day <laughs> so I I really don't care if consciousness ends <laughs> Like, I've already experienced that. We sleep. You're not conscious when you sleep. That's true. That's well, consciousness I mean, does not equal yeah, life. Your ego yeah, you're you're, you're yeah. conscious to a degree when you sleep, right? Because you dream or you don't remember your dreams, but you're not completely blipped out. I had an interesting experience. I had, I, I had to have surgery. And, and they put me... Um, you know, they, they put me under general anesthesia because they had to cut open, cut open my stomach, pull my guts out. 
It's hard. Sick. <laughs> right. Uh, I, and, and, and my experience of that was wholly unlike dreaming and sleeping. Because when I sleep, I feel myself slip away. And when I'm a, asleep, I, I turn over and I wake, or I get restless and I, and I exist in a twilight state. But surgery, general anesthesia, was a waking out. I winked out. And then, and then I erupted back into existence when they brought me out of it. And there was absolutely no experience that, that I can recall during that period. And, it, and it, that was a liberating Maybe moment. Maybe you died. I mean, that was, I, didn't, I didn't die on the table. Yeah, my heart never stopped. But, but my consciousness, as far as I perceived it, and, and, and to, 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 to walk right up to the line of solipsism, my consciousness, to the, to the degree that I perceived it, was gone. Don't, you know, I don't perceive mine. mine. I just perceive with it. Right, right. Well, I think that's a, that's a, a, a good way to put it. That's only partially true. You know, but it was a liberating experience for me because I realized at that moment that that's what death is going to be like. And death is not as scary as dying. Right, right. And it's not the same as dying. No. And, 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 that's, and, and that is a comfort, you know. I mean, when I was younger, it did... Uh, the, the, the people, human and non-human, that I had lost, it felt like they were when they were died, it felt to me like they were in a perpetual state of dying. Mm. You know, that suffering stage. That, that's where they were kind of trapped. And now that I'm older, I realize that's not true at all. The, the, the suffering that was there is, is gone now. And, that's, and, and that is a relief. It really is. And, and what you were saying about surgery, um, reminded me of uh, a Ligotti interview in which he talks about back in 2000, 2012 uh, he had major surgery emergency surgery on his colon um, uh, you know he, he went into sepsis and, um, uh, and and what he what he wrote here um, was I heard the word septic before a mask was placed over my face and I lost consciousness, which wasn't really consciousness by that time. It was just beeps and boops from something that didn't know or care what it was or what would become of it, that no longer wanted anything, not even relief from the pain that by then had wholly consumed it. After, and so, you know, he, uh, he lost himself for a while in it. And, you know, and, uh, paradoxically, uh, uh, having that loss of, of, of consciousness, both from the anesthesia uh, and from the pain, uh, caused him to uh, be revitalized. Um, and so much so that he, he wrote two new stories at the time. Um, and, and that what he calls hypomanic state lasted for for a year or two, um, and, uh, and and that that's been very true in my experience uh, as as well. Uh, that uh, disaster, both personal and and widespread, uh, can and often does lead to a paradoxical revitalization of you know quote unquote the spirit. I want to chime in on something here that I think may be important, and just just a possible question to take this in, because we've been talking a lot about nihilism as the uh, eliminate the, the imminent or or eventual uh, elimination of the individual identity. 
Uh, and I wonder to what degree that's culturally informed um, and what how our cultural context in the West affects that because certainly like at, at the beginning of conspiracy of the human race there is a quote uh, and uh, you know it's a quote uh, that says uh, look at your body a painted puppet a poor toy of jointed parts ready to collapse a diseased and suffering thing with a head full of false imaginings and that's a quote from I believe the fifth century uh, from a Buddhist text called the Dhammapada. And so there are certainly cultural traditions that where the elimination of the self is perhaps not such a high-stakes venture because the self is more diffused in a group or, or because the, there is a tradition of looking at this in a way that Western culture doesn't. And uh, you know, in Buddhism, you know, people talk about reincarnation, but reincarnation is a bad thing in Buddhism. It means you didn't do your job right, right. you know, the first time around, and that you, you know, you, you are on the wheel of samsara because you held on to things and grasped things. So there's, on the one hand, um, Lugati's perspective and other perspectives like his strike me as, in a way, paradoxical because on, on the one end, it's you almost have to take on the perspective of an alien intelligence and kind of looking at the human perspective from the outside. And uh, and I think that's maybe one reason why people who are, are who have experiences with alienation relate to it, because you're outside of the human family looking in and you can almost get to that point outside of the human species where you can objectively look at our predicament and be honest about it. and. And everything, but if before too long you're sucked back in because you're human and you have the machinery and you're hardwired to find meaning, even if that meaning is false, like in cases of uh, um, pareidolia uh, and this sort of thing, where we think we see the face of the Virgin Mary in a taco shell <laughs> and this kind of thing, um, and or you know the other experiences like that, um, and so. Yeah, I mean, there's there is this other cultural way of looking at it, but. On the other, and you know, that's one perspective of it, where you're kind of almost very alien perspective on the human life. But on the other hand, there's this aspect of Lagadi's work that is almost Buddhist, where um, where it, it's about you know the you know suffering happens, um, and the way out of suffering is to not hold on to our insistence that that there's meaning. And there is an aspect in my own life where, you know, uh, once I let go of the expectation of meaning and just like, okay, it's a meaningless universe. Those are the cards I've been dealt. What can I do with it? Well, I could off myself, you know, that would have implications for other people in my life. And I don't, I, you know, just empathy forces me to, to not do that. Um, or I can kind of do what, you know, dance this weird nonsensical dance that we have before us and be silly and be the the clown in the madhouse and uh that's that's my role right now at least that's the decision i've made and maybe some point in the future i'll make a different decision but um you know i mean if i were 70 years old and i was afflicted with something like alzheimer's or something and i got diagnosed with that i don't know what i would do but um, for just for today, I'm you know I, I just like to cheer and and do cartwheels and you know it, yes it's nonsensical we can't but 
I embrace the irrationality of it, and I embrace the paradoxes. And so it's like I said on the panel yesterday, it's irrational to write books given this predicament that we're in. It's irrational to read books given this predicament we're in. It's in, it, it, irrational at some points to live given this predicament that we're in. All hail irrationality. Well, this is yeah. right. This is this is Camus' point. The, uh, you know, the ex ex existence is absurd. It's filled with absurdity in our every waking moment, and 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 he he re he revolts against that. I mean, that's his entire philosophy: is that you revolt against absurdity by by acknowledging that life itself is enough. And at the end of the myth of Sisyphus, his essay on, on a sort of absurdity and meaning, or the lack of meaning, you know, he says one must imagine Sisyphus happy. I mean, you're, you're, everyone in this room is aware of Don't tell Sisyphus. me what to do. The figure who was cursed to roll a rock up a hill for eternity, and every time he got it to the top of the hill, it would roll back down, and he had to repeat this over and over for eternity as a punishment. And, and Camus imagined him living in the moment and deciding that life itself was enough to combat the absurdity and the meaninglessness of this task which he had to perform forever. I mean, is this, is this a necessary step we all take? We've all had this moment where we said, yes, there is no intrinsic meaning in itself to this life, but we must, we must go on. Like, this is Camus' initial question, why not suicide? Why shouldn't we kill ourselves? And he, and he comes to this idea of revolt against absurdity. Nietzsche does the same thing with them. It's all a choice. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it's coming, you know, whether we're involved or not. Um, you know, like Ligotti said, we can ignore it for as long as we can, but one day the day of reckoning must come. Uh, you know, we're thankfully we're not Sisyphus. <laughs> we're we're not we're not doomed to. I, I, at least I hope not. You know, it's another thing that God has said that there's no grand scheme of things, and if there was a grand scheme of things, it would be a nightmarish obscenity. Yeah, that would be horrifying. Um, um, but all of this is 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 what he called the the. Um, the death of tragedy in the arms of non-existence. Um, it's a paradox um, that, it, that only by the loss of our identity, the loss of, of our consciousness in our puppet bodies uh, and our transition into an emptying out of what we consider ourselves into a full-fledged corpse puppet, empty of all buzzing thoughts, all drama, all consciousness. That's that that in in uh, in his worldview is the is the only salvation. Yeah, I, for me, the, the Camus is just a little bit too. Um, cheerful, uh, yeah. It's like, uh, yeah. I, I, and there's something in here. I mean, I, if I if I wanted to believe that there was something redemptive in Sisyphus, then I could possibly find something there to hold on to and to and to cheer him on with. But um, 
but yeah, I, I don't I don't find that honest. I don't find that convincing. Uh, but what I, I so rather than you know I think you use the word like fighting the absurdity or or revolt revolt, 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 revolt against yeah. I, I'm I'm for wallowing in the absurdity. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't see it yeah. as revolt. I see yeah. it more as just like giving up. Like well, and, and, it and, takes and, more work to resist nihilism than right. it takes to you can revel in it as well. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. Wallowing yeah. in it, kind of like you know, getting in it like a like a pig in the mud, you know, and kind of like rolling all around in it. Because I mean, what do you have to lose? Well, and and I mean, it's like reality has been disintegrating around us for like the last few years. If you haven't been noticing, you know, uh, you know, less and it, less plausible. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. You know, I mean, the world is more absurd. Everything seems to be degenerating into some stupider, uh, more, uh, more, you know, just absurd version of itself. And so, yeah, I, I choose to wallow around. We're going to buy Greenland. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, and not just political institutions, but every institution is is more and more and more nightmarishly hilarious. And so, yeah, I mean, now more than ever, I mean, I, the only way I know how to, how to deal with this is to not fight the absurdity. And because then, because then we make a new hero and, and then we, then we, we put sissy fits up on a, on a, pet, a pedestal and say, this is what a good person does. And I, I think I'm a, my, my personality is just inherently more irreverent than that. And so I think that I, I need to, I would be like throwing, you know, cream pies at Sisyphus and, you know, uh, you know, we need a little bit more of a Marx Brothers or Three Stooges kind of uh, approach to Sisyphus. Put him in a Three Stooges short and then uh, we'll be there. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're closing in. We've got about... Uh, I think maybe 15, 20 minutes left. I'd love to open the floor to questions. Uh, clearly, people have them. I think your hand was up first. Um, we talked a lot about Ligotti. I was wondering if briefly we could touch on Nietzsche, who said that Western culture had uh, killed God through science and secular humanism. I was wondering if you could touch on uh, sort of how, you know, how liberation can come through nihilism and uh, using science as sort of an instrument of proof. I, I, I'll, just, I'll just have one, quick, oh, just one, one quick comment, which is science has brought us a revelation. I mean, there's this wonderful thing uh, someone up in Canada concocted called the God Helmet, which uh, basically has taught us that we can trigger um, uh, near-death experiences and spiritual experiences by just kind of, you know, stimulating a certain, you know, neuron or set of neurons in the brain, certain areas in the brain. So I'm not sure if if that's a, a solution, I mean, I, as appealing as kind of like the Gene Roddenberry, not to marry Gene Roddenberry to Nietzsche, but talking about you know, secular humanism and science prevailing, I think of nothing. If we look at science's findings, honestly, we have to just see that it's another, uh, another chamber of the haunted house. And here's another uh, Ligati quote for you. Nihilism is as dead as God. <laughs> uh, sure. So, um, am I loud enough? Is this loud? Oh, can everyone hear me? We can hear you. 
Um, you know, Nicole Cushing wrote, like, I think my favorite scene of hell in Satan's Bible where she describes going into a cracker barrel, um, which is way worse than having skin played away or being betrayed or anything else. And, right, I've been thinking about this a lot, is that, like, it seems like there's a sort of banality of nihilism that's possible in which you say, nothing matters and I no longer have to try, right? It's it's what we would maybe call straw nihilism. It's the nihilism of an onanistic sort of edgelord where you're like, oh, everything's shit. I'm just going to masturbate in the corner to like, you know, like medical porn and like ironically be a Nazi. And, and, and like, right, that's maybe one of the reasons that nihilism has a bad name is the inability to clear out like the worst human beings imaginable. Um, because, like, you know, they're pedophile Nazis. Um, yeah, there's still kind of a... <laughs> there's still kind of a heroism in the way that nihilists talk about nihilism and romanticize right. it with yeah. their language. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, we're hunks of spoiling flesh on bones. Oh, yeah, like, no, it's all Even that's... Like that. yeah. yeah. But nihilism is definitely a pejorative. I mean, there's no question, question about it. And I, I would... If, you know, and, and we've been through this... For, for years, Legati and I have been uh, corresponding about, you know, whether he's a nihilist or not. And, and uh, my conclusion is that if he is, then he is uh, some kind of uh, uh, hybrid nihilist humanist. <laughs> right. uh, he, he definitely is, he, he definitely doesn't subscribe to the idea that because there's no meaning, we we shouldn't have, we should just run wild and free, you know, and yeah, like wait what for great news? Nothing already intrinsically means something. Right. So, like, we can actually do shit. Yeah, it, it becomes <laughs> more existential. We can find more valuable meaning. I think that, that was to his point of Nietzsche declaring the death of God, which was a declaration that, that Christian morality was something that, that, that we have moved beyond. As as a, as a culture, as a species, and we need to reevaluate our values, find a new way to live authentically in the world because this has failed us. But there, there, there's the incipient a... uh, thing, right? Is like Legati's obvious point is that you should be a fucking socialist because literally <laughs> choosing to make other human beings suffer for no fucking reason is a monstrous act. There, yeah, there's, there's, there's a dark, dark side to nihilism, and that's his focus. Yeah, right. if, like, which is why I don't understand the edge word. If, if, if you go to like the Marquis de Sade. You would say like, oh, because no, everything is meaningless. Why can't I just do whatever I want to anybody? I should just look after my own pleasure because there's there's no there's no social constructs. There's, I should just do whatever I want because we're all gonna die. And there's a the dark side of nihilism, mm-hmm. you know, which also leads into fascism. Well, yeah, you I, you know, know that, that was one of the things I encountered during the research, and I, and I found these people who were who were, who were revolted by the idea of it, and and one of them had just. Um, had declared that the idea that there is, you know, there is now, is just a, a sort of narcissistic hedonism, and 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 they dismissed it by saying that well, this is just a way for people to do whatever they want, right. which which is that straw nihilist that you brought up, you know, you, you know, you just sit and, and and eat Cheetos and 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 play video games and and rail against. Um, uh, you know, all, all, all sorts of uh, of imagined phones. How many times have you seen, say, like Christians say, "Well, if there's no God, why isn't everybody just out raping?" Well, yeah, why wouldn't you? Yeah, right, like, right. That's the class. I mean, As Pen- if Pendulet, that's the only alternative. Yeah, Pendulette has a wonderful response to that, which is, you know, I don't believe in, I, and, and and I and I adopt it by reference here. I don't believe in God, and I rape and murder as much as I want. 
which is which is not at yeah. all. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just not a thing that's that that I want to do. That's in me, and so this idea of removing removing the external moral judge uh, immediately demands that you become a monster is is uh, is a, is a straw position. So yeah. Oh, Richie, you've had your hand up for. for. Uh, I just wanted to. And then. I wanted to ask if um, uh, the benefits of nihilism as like a salvific force is um, a privilege, uh, specifically an economic privilege. Um, I know a lot of um, fans and writers are, are dirt poor, don't have economic privilege, but even they have a privilege of an education and a pile of books and time to read them. So people who have none of those privileges, um, just to, to give an example, I, I was brought up in the same tradition as Daphne, and um, one of the solidarity. One of, one of the things our, our people do is they swarm the most abject favelas and shanty towns mm. in the world because they know that they're going to get a lot of baptisms. Mm. It's just an equation that they do, um, and they're not going to. I I knew someone who went on a mission to France. He had one baptism, but if you get sent to, to parts of <laughs> to Africa Rio, yeah. and and parts of Brazil that are, are squalid, you'll come back with hundreds of baptisms because people there don't have the um, option to read Ligotti. Maybe the only book they have is the Bible. Because people are giving us them for free. They're, right, yeah. right. So I'm, I'm just saying is that the, the people who suffer the worst, is, is nihilism even the, the, the positive nihilism is that even an option? No, I, I, you know it's funny. I, th I think he, I think you're, at, you've got a, a really wonderful point, which is that that we're all sitting here in a position of privilege, talking about our ability to willfully deny meaning and find another way to live our lives, where where not necessarily everyone has that option because they they haven't had the educational opportunity to even. Uh, have the, the, the tools to begin the, the, the investigation. Do you I, don't, the, I don't know if I buy that. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily a privileged position to come to a, a nihilist conclusion. Like, I mean, well, not necessarily I, to come to it, to, to, but to have such freedom to do it in the way that we're doing it. Oh, right. And as a part of... And as a part of I don't know, um, I've never done it casually. Yeah, and as a, and as a part of entertainment, <laughs> like, you know, uh, uh, literature and, and, and TV. And, and well, well, philosophy in its nature is bourgeois. You know, like, if you take a working class person, who has time for philosophy? You know what I mean? I, I mean, I did. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, think, too, I think that most people are philosophers in some way, I mean, to some degree, because you just can't. These are fundamental questions of existence and being. I think fundamental questions. I, mean, I think, well, I think it's a choice to, like, just take. I, I think they actively resist. Well, you, I you think they're aware of the ready-made social constructs of like religion, or you follow your sports team, or whatever you find meaning. If you just take it upon yourself and you don't actually question, and I think a lot of people do that. Yeah, I, and, also, and, and also, in all social classes, though, I mean, the 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 thing that that popped in my head immediately is. Uh, you know the quote that I gave from from uh, the essay by the the Dr. Raymond Foss. Uh, he uh, he grew up in a, a horrible environment, very very poor, very uneducated, 
very abused, um, and and, uh, and he uh, now his the children the traumatized children that he works with are from the same background, um, and those are the ones that uh, that that being told that it's not okay, uh, which you know it, it is doesn't have to be backed up by, by any kind of philosophy or literature um, has helped the most. Right. Nicole, you wanted to oh, say? Oh, yeah, a, a couple of things. One is, you know, I, I think we need to be careful not to, to pat ourselves on the back too much. Is, you know, because there's another, another side of this, which is, of course, we have all of these advantages, and we, we are able to read the, the stuff, but other people can't. I mean, you know, a lot of people who are educated are, are uh, you know, are, are reading crap. <laughs> you know, but, but you know, the, so so they're you know, it, it's a minority position regardless in terms of just the numbers. I mean, like it, it's a it's a, a, a yeah, it's a it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of people who are drawn to this in literature too. But I mean, my husband's an electrician. I grew up in a blue collar family. I live in a blue collar neighborhood in. Um, southern Indiana, um, you know, my neighbors are, you know, uh, you know, retired school janitors and this sort of thing, and um, and so I think, you know, and, and my my husband reads and I read obviously, and and so I think what what Richie might be getting to is that there is a certain vulnerability that comes with economic vulnerability. And if you can play the, your cards right, if you and this is something that not just folks from other countries can do, but also uh, vagrants or people, you know, people who uh, ride the rails or or hang out, is you know, there there are certain kinds of aid that are available if you're willing to listen to the sermon and go through the motions of being baptized or whatever. And so, if you're smart, you can go through the motions. You can get baptized. And you can take their aid, and, and you know, and then you know, maybe do it repeatedly for different groups of, of uh, missionaries or whatever, and you can eke, eke out an existence like that. And so there's a survival idea, and I think there is, you know, there in in uh, communities that are economically struggling, there is a little bit more of an investment in, you know, we have to, in my experience, I can't speak for everybody, but there is a little bit more of like, we have to invest some in the group because we all have to help each other. But, you know, you can hear, um, you know, all kinds of discussions. I mean, you know, the opioid epidemic in my area is uh, certainly a reflection that not everyone buys. In. I mean, there's a desperation behind that. And, you know, uh, I've talked to people who um, were resuscitated from overdoses and uh, were angry that they'd been resuscitated. Yeah. And so, uh, so there's certainly, I think that, you know, anyone, anybody who's been run over by the truck called life can, you know, can, and can show you, the, can show you their tire tracks and, and can give voice to this. But again, we're, you know, in terms of like the, the, the beauty of the literature, that's something that is a different way of appreciating it. You wanted to ask a question. Nicole just addressed most of it. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> wonderful. I got a call on you and, and didn't have to talk to you. So, <laughs> I knew you could take that. Uh, how about you? So, you know, with Richie's point about, you know, the popularity of JC, pretty cool dude. Uh, Nicole said, you know, a lot of rich people are, are pretty into that scene too. The Bible, I mean, come on, the greatest story ever told. That's, it's hard to compete against that. If the Bible is the greatest story ever told, what do you guys think that makes the conspiracy against the human race? 
Is it, is it the worst story ever told? Is it the truest story ever told? It's just another story. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it, it's a you know it's a point of view, um, uh, but it is it has the uh, advantage of um, of as much as the author can possibly uh, not obfuscating. Um, uh, what he feels uh, is true about life, um, and uh, I, I mean that's how it was. You know, it was originally designed because uh, because people kept on, myself including, kept on uh, telling Tom, you know, you need to write a self-help book. Yeah, I mean, really, a self-help book for for people like you. Um, and uh, so that's that, that's uh, that's kind of what I consider it. Um, but yeah, it's it's also it, it, it's got it's a weird it's a weird book because like the Bible, it's it, it, it's it's got plenty of fiction in it as well. Um, uh, it's it's really a, a hybrid work. I mean, the subtitle is a a, a contrivance of horror. Um, so you know, it kind of blurs the line between uh, uh, the, the true and the unreal because it's talking so much about supernatural horror and supernatural. The supernatural is being kind of a a, a stand-in for uh, the the uncanny or or, or madness. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah, it's it, it's quite it, it's it's quite a book. We got time, I think, for maybe one more. Um, Jillian, have you? Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask a bit more about existential nihilism mm -hmm. and sort of—is it still nihilism if, if at the end you're kind of optimistic about it? Uh, specifically, this idea of like, well, because there is no inherent meaning in the universe, we can make our own meaning, and isn't that great? Uh, as long as we're doing right by the other humans in our lives. Well, this, yeah, yeah. I mean, is, it, uh, it boiled down to its essence, if, if for anybody who couldn't hear, I mean, are, you're asking, is, is humanism the answer to nihilism or some sort of other ism to take, to take uh, its place once you've come to that position? I think it's it's kind of a, a hide and seek game, you know. Where okay, now I have my my uh, now I'm okay with things. Now I've I've mm -hmm. you know, I've I, I've created my meaning. Okay, then that erodes. Well, you know, now I'm going to look for something else. Uh, and and I think it's a for ne just for today, I'm okay with it being a hide and seek game. You know, just for today, I'm going to invest my energy in my marriage because that's something re rewarding. Well, at some point, my husband will die. You know, and then it's like, oh shit. You know, and then I'll I might invest my meaning in something else. Um, and yeah, I mean, Logati said existence equals nightmare. So I don't think it, you know existence. Uh, incorporates, uh, you know, my the meaning that I find. It, you know, the meaning that I find is ultimately also a nightmare. But I can go, you know, kind of from like self-fashioned nightmare to self-fashioned nightmare to, you know, in this hide-and-seek game. So, um, you know, we're all single cells of mold on a ball of rapidly cooling liquid hurtling through a vast nothingness. Whatever, I've but, got a whole population living in my gut. Yeah. But for a little over an hour, we've all been in this room together and enjoying each other's company. And I want to thank you so much for coming to hear us talk.
deal. Hey everybody, before we wrap up this episode, I'd like to take a minute to say thank you for tuning in. We hope you're enjoying the podcast from our interviews and actual plays to our rambling roundtable discussions. If you like what you're here and you'd like to support the show, we have great sponsors for you to check out. Birds of a Feather Coffee Company is a small batch craft coffee roaster and is our OG sponsor. They have three signature blends to choose from. The Morning Lark, which is a light roast. The Night Owl Blend, which is a rich dark roast. And the Hummingbird Decaf Blend. They also have the exclusive Legendary Brew, a nice medium roast coffee, perfect fuel for all those late night gaming sessions. If you use the code LEGENDS10, you'll get 10% off your order and shipping is always free. So head on over to tinyurl.com forward slash legendary brew or click on the link in the show notes. Thanks everybody for checking it out. We'll catch you next time. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.